brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, a board game podcast about board games. I'm here with my good friend, Mark. How are you today, Mark? I'm holding it together, Walker. How are you? Getting there. Getting there. Getting the, where? The, the I'm the one going somewhere. The deadline's coming. That's what the, the, the darkness at the end of the tunnel. Oh, all right. <laughs> this is a podcast about board games, and we're going to talk about the games we played this week. Then we're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And then we're going to talk about our... Feature game twins of the week, which is Imperium Classics and Imperium Legends. I never know what to call them collectively. I think collectively they're just Imperium Simpliciter. But as we've commented before, Imperium is a loaded term and you need... I thought it was Freak Twins. No. Okay. I'm reasonably confident it's not that. Okay. Mark, what did you play this week? We played another game of Dice Miner, and I have to say, it's inoffensive, but I, I, I can't shake the feeling that after having played it twice, we've basically solved it. I mean, it's a dice drafting game where effectively the utility dice don't really do anything sufficiently interesting, such that you just want a large volume of white dice. And so anything else, unless you have a specific requirement, feels like a waste of time. Am I missing something? No, it could be right. I, it would need more plays, I think. Maybe that's what it turns out to be, a fight for the white dice and enough re-rolls in order to get what you need out of them. Because, during again, during the first round, things get a little bit more interesting because you know what the dice values are and you're trying to build these runs. And so if you, you look at that and you say, okay, well, there's a three available here and a two down there and a one down there. Okay, how can I orchestrate things such that I'm going to get them? Because you don't care in what order you get them. But then... Coming into round two, you have this massive fistful of dice, and you just chuck them all. And so the solution is generally just more. More white dice is more points. It's more likelihood of rolling what you need. And then you cease caring about what you're drafting, really. This is all true. 
but it's over very quickly. It's true. It's a super easy teach. Much like a shot to the head. It's a super easy teach. You get to roll tons of dice, and it's it's not painful. I Yet. <laughs> I suppose this this all strikes me as damning with very faint praise. Well, that's Dice Miner. <laughs> and it's designed by Joshua Boines and Nikolai Riteski, and it's published by Atlas Games. This game has an odd title, Mark. What game would that be? Influentia. I think it's Influentia. In, like, would it be like for like influence? I, is that I, what I have to assume. All right. This is from Miguel Bruquet and published by Ludo Nova. And this is a trick-taking game? Ish. Ish. So there is, there is a lead and there is Trump. Yes. You don't need to follow the lead. Yes, it's, it, 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 the resolution is trick-taking without the necessity of following the lead suit. But the lead suit will take the trick if nobody plays Trump. And there's all sorts of other things. I think with multiple plays, there'll be all sorts of more decision space in there. As you see what symbols you need and what symbols are out there and you know the, to manage your hand a little bit better and not worry so much about winning tricks or winning them when you need to type thing. I like everything about Influentia except the tremendous influence of the luck of the draw in the game. Because when you win a trick in Influentia, you can claim these control cards, and control cards help you win area control majorities later on. But if you don't win the trick, what you do is you keep the card that you played in the trick in front of you, and the moment you pair up on symbols, and the symbols are independent of the suits, you get to trigger a special power, which situationally can be incredibly consequential. And you can build towards them, and you can try to avoid certain other things, and sometimes you can set yourself up to trigger a couple of powers in concert. And all of that is great. I really liked all of it, with the exception that normally in a trick-taking game, there's a rel- relatively heavy influence of luck as it is. But in a normal trick-taking game, what you do is you deal out the entirety of the deck, and then that's how you play the hand. And or there are partnerships, and or there there's that and the other. In Influentia, you start out with six cards, and every time you play a trick, you draw one more card. And given that you don't have to follow suit, just are you drawing more trumps than everybody else? And it's a good thing that there is all this other stuff, because when we were playing Chip one a solid majority of the tricks near the, the end of the round. He just kept pulling trumps and he was trumping everything, which he's allowed to do. In a normal trick-taking game, there's only so many times you can trump because of just, you That's have right. to follow suit and because you know how many trumps you have to last throughout the rest of the round. But uh, as I say, the powers I really like, kind of sort of subtle combos, the different cards you can win, all of that was really, really cool. But I just couldn't help but feel that it was that the influence of the luck of the draw was just so prevalent. That's right. You're going for the majorities in these cities, and if you're going to get someone else, they, a card will flip up You know, when it's not your turn. They'll take it. There are some mechanisms that let you not directly take it from them, but make them put it back in the middle and make it available to you. But that's You send lo- the rats after them. Yeah. That's right. You send the rats after them, but that would require you to get the cards to get the rats to take it and then get the rats to bring it to you. So two combos after the fact. So yes, like you said, the luck of the draw in many ways. Honestly, I wonder, I'm not the kind of person to tinker much with game designs. I agree with you that there's a substantial influence of luck based on just what happens to come available. Again, if you're fighting for a majority over something, and as you say, a tremendously valuable card for that majority comes up, well, then you're kind of in trouble. But I wonder if Influentia would feel better 
if the hands worked more like traditional trick-taking game. I, I suspect it would get slightly better if you just dealt out the entirety of the deck at the start of the round so you knew what you were dealing with. I also wonder what would happen, although this is a more fundamental change and I don't think it would be an easy household territory, if you had to follow suit, if possible. The problem is there, then you wouldn't be able to do the cool things with all the icons and triggering special powers that way. It's just those two factors in conjunction make me feel like the game is ultimately trivial, which is a shame because, as I say, the rest of the stuff in Influentia I quite enjoy. And that is Influentia. Played more Llama Dice. Llama Dice is quickly becoming our filler-length game of choice. I would just like to note, there's been some discussion lately that filler might be a pejorative, and I can certainly see why people would view it that way. Uh, filler, for me, is, is purely an indication of the length of play, and or sometimes complexity of rules. There are certain games that last the length of a filler, but have tr- uh, substantially more rules overhead. Two-player innovation comes to mind uh, just off the top of my head. Not that innovation is particularly difficult to internalize, but it is uh, a little more rules-heavy than, say, something like Llama Dice. It's not that we've revealed hidden depths. We kind of knew what Llama Dice was all about the first couple times we- we've played. But the tempo considerations seem to be coming up in a more pointed way than they were before. And I don't know whether this is just because we're noticing them more or because we are better players now and so we're putting people in awkward tempo considerations better, or if it just happens to be an exogenous feature of the random draws and the random rolls that we're getting. But Reiner Knizzi knows how to do dice games. There's lots of lovely little moments, and I'm awaiting for you to retheme this for Llamas with Hats. It's coming. That would be interesting. On subject for the games, once again, Micro Macro never fails for all the points that you just said. Easy to teach. Easy, easy to set up. You put it on the map, <laughs> start going through the cards. Like even, you know, I just handed the box to Chip the Third and said, you know, showed him how the crime was right on the cover of the box. He got onto how it worked. Too easy. Micro Macro, designed by Johannes Sick, published by Pegaspiel. I keep saying it over and over again. There's good narrative and then there's bad narrative. And sometimes absence of narrative is not bad narrative, but for me, bad narrative is, you know, clumsy flavor text, too long, clunky paragraphs, mediocrely written. But the thing that's so distracting about Micro Macro is that there are these lovely little vignettes all over the place, stories everywhere, personality leaping off of the page. And so, yes, another great session. We seem to have developed the trick, though. The higher difficulty cases aren't so much more complicated or more difficult as they are more spatially disparate. If it's a difficulty four case and you see the dead body and you need to find the first clue, it's probably not going to be on the same block. It's probably going to be a few blocks away. So I immediately, now having a little bit of experience with it, I see it's a difficulty four case. I just basically ignore the core center where the victim is. And the the fact that they have them facing away from you now is a huge difference. I hadn't played the harder ones yet. I was just slowly making through you know, the easier ones. And th- this one was... Uh... It's a real challenge of, of visual recognition, but it's the kind of thing where the moment someone clues into it and, and figures it out, you're able to grasp those threads very firmly. It's not a... I'm shocked. At, again, this is about personality. This is about evocation in the best possible way. Full credit to the artist. This is a case where the moment you see an individual and you you pick out their identifying visual characteristics, you can then immediately track them throughout the city. It's not that you look at something and say, is that the same person? It could be, but it kind of looks like this. No, no, no. You know immediately that they're not wearing the right scarf or whatever. Yeah, their ears aren't quite right. Yep. All right, let's cycle through these fillers. Next up is Pengu Pengu, a.k.a. Your Your Penguin, designed by Yabuchi Ryoko. Self-published as well. With care and love. It's a dexterity game with adorable penguins and 
and Chunkers, the chunky-like penguin. Chunkers McLorge pants. He, he came out. He, he did his job. <laughs> he, he definitely did his like, job. Like, you know, when you need the heavy hitters, Mark, you know who to call. <laughs> He's the guy. He comes in. Absolutely. No questions. He does what needs to get done. I think he even intimidated that polar bear. He, I think so. <laughs> I, I'd be scared. <laughs> Not exactly, again, what you would call a rigorous competitive experience. <laughs> no, but it looks amazing. Oh, yes. Thoroughly enjoyable. I can't wait for Crash Octopus. Crash Octopus. When are we going to get to play Crash we Octopus? We can only hope. Oh. And lastly, in our in my filler spot, we got to play Regicide. I think this was the first time I played four players, and it I think it did change it up slightly, right? You have... A little more sort of waiting for your turn to come around so you can sort of think about what's going to happen, whether or not you're going to be able to deal with it. A little more, uh, I don't want to say handcuffy, but a little more care about not being able to tell the other players because you're like sitting there and you're not sure if it's going to be changing suit by the time it gets to you. Like when it's only, you know, two players and you know for sure you're going to get that same enemy. Mm. Anyway, what did you think? The big difference for me with different player accounts is the hand size, because most of the time, what you have to do is contribute towards defeating the boss and then be able to soak up some quantity of damage and then be able to do the same next round or hope that there's going to be some card draw somewhere between. For me, the, the, the big challenge, I mean, all the suits are, are crucial when you're playing Regicide, but for me, it, it, I conceptualize it mostly around the diamonds. Now, if you weren't playing hearts at the right time, you'll never have the, the cards you need to draw. If you're not playing spades at the right time, you're going to be discarding too many cards, and it doesn't matter how good your heart hand draws, etc., etc., etc. And that's the agony of the card play in Regicide, and I mean that in the highest possible sense. I, I was reminded when we were playing, and you know, the first boss shows up, and I'm looking at my hand, and I realize none of these four suits can I play. <laughs> but you have to, you have to get started. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Regicide was a thoroughly unexpected delight. The amount of design they did for just a simple deck of cards, and at the same time, the value added by the quality and nature of the artwork for this allegedly simple deck of cards. I don't know who said it was a simple deck of cards. That person was obviously a fool and should regret everything they said and never be allowed to speak publicly again. It is a permanent fixture in my gaming bag, and I've yet to have a disappointing experience with it, except playing solo. Solo is still... I've, I've gone back to it solo, and I've tried it again. It's too tricky for me. I just can't wrap my head around it. I feel like there are too few cards in the system, basically. When you're playing two-player, you've got two full hands of cards. When you're playing one player, there's only the one hand. And yes, it's larger... But it doesn't scale linearly in any in any sort of sense. And so I feel like there's just not enough there. And it's a kind of puzzle that's definitely too complicated for my people, right? Not that we've ever won multiplayer either. We haven't even come close to winning. We once made it to the Kings. Yes. A couple into the Kings once, I believe, too. I think you're right. I thoroughly enjoy the challenge. Regicide has my highest possible recommendation. I'm a huge fan. We also got to try Pax Viking. Pax Viking is the latest game in the Pax series. This is designed by John Manker at Ion Game Design. And it's very different from a lot of the rest of the PAX games, while simultaneously somewhat similar. It's similar in that there's this interplay between a geography on a kind of board plus card play. And nominally, the card play is kind of similar in that you're not building a tableau anymore like you would in another PAX game, but instead the cards literally go out on the map. But they're still tied to you. You can't use other people's cards it's just there's there has to be this relationship between the boats that you're sending out sailing everywhere. And a surprising emphasis is, is, is placed on getting from point A to point B. Especially since boats can only move so far in a given turn, and then you have to start at the beginning. It's 
got a weird economic focus that I haven't really seen pay off. Like, there, there's a lot of cards that are about spend an action to get some money or play this card to get some money and what have you. But given, again, this emphasis on travel, this emphasis on area majorities or area control by getting your boats in the right places, I never really felt like money was one of the primary concerns. It, this was mostly a game about putting out your influence discs on various cards. Now, granted, you have to buy those cards, but you can also get cards for free. So... <laughs> It, it, it's strange, like many of the PAX games. It's it's definitely strange. What did you think, Walker? Well, I think that was mostly, ba- like we said, based on because we were playing the baby version, right? It gives you this list of victory conditions, and the beginning ones are mostly get your tokens off your tableau out onto the board, and you do that by taking over territory. So that's why I felt this particular game was an emphasis on getting out there and, and moving around, and I'm thinking that once we get with, with the different objectives, it won't be so much. Well, but in order to play any card, you have to get your boat in the right place. Unlike other PAX games where it is playing the card that gives you board position, here it's inverted. In PAX Viking, you have the board position so you can play the card. And I don't know how I feel about that. One of the charms of the PAX series for me was precisely that one-way, well, not precisely one-way, but mostly one-way dynamic of the tableau influencing the way the board works as opposed to the other way around. Because at the end of the day, it, uh, one of our flashpoints of conflict was precisely because I would you know, bring in ships to try to fight you over a card, you bring in ships to reinforce and so on. And it didn't feel like there was interesting card play driving that. It was just, well, just shoving actions at boats to move them around. And so I, I think that this, as an evolution of the pack series, is an interesting design evolution, but I don't know how it's going to shake out. I, too, am very curious to see how the other victory conditions manage, because, yes, the baby victory conditions seemed very uninspired. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember. We looked at them. I don't remember them, but I'm sure it'll be a race to, like, say, resources, like you said. And a lot of the territories were, yes, you have to be there to not only uh, play these locations, but you also have to be there to activate them which give you resources but i I'm think i'm feeling as though once we get them out and start pumping the engine then there'll be less of this conflict back and forth and more of you know trying to just build your empire out and work those engines to try to get those resources faster maybe we'll see. yeah maybe it, it's strange because on the one hand it is by far the simplest of the pax games but on this but by the same token it still has a lot of the strange rule interactions that you would identify with a pax game you know the slim rule book where it's like okay it says this exact sequence of words and so it works in just this way we have to be very careful and it's all very strange but by the same token it is so different from all the other PAX games I can't even recommend it as a sort of introductory PAX if you want to see what other games like PAX Premier are like I mean I'm somewhat intrigued I want to play it again as I said and we'll see how the improved or rather more complicated elaborate slash difficult victory conditions influence the game but that is our early experience with PAX Viking so now that we're big time, Mark, we got to play the big time games, the super blinged out, you know, nothing's too good for Isn't us here at, at, at the Swag headquarters. You, you realize the first game we ever reviewed was Kingdom Death Monster, right? I do. But that doesn't even come close to this tricked out, <laughs> toot and common game from Reiner Knizia that just came out. Oh boy, yes. Every, not- every time I set it up. I have asked everyone at the table, have you ever seen a more overproduced game? And so far, no one has given me a, an example of something that is more overproduced than this edition of Tutankhamun. A, a first player metal two-sided marker that you don't need, a giant neoprene, not just. Well, sorry. not giant. Not a giant. small neoprene mat 
for no reason. But giant figures that go on this neoprene mat for yep. also no reason. The gilded sarcophagus in the middle of the box bottom for no reason. That being said, the game is fairly interesting. You create this giant Nile River out of all of these uh, tiles. And it's one of these games where you can go as far along the track as you like. And you start collecting these sets of artifacts, but they all have a set number. And they don't score until they're all of those tokens are off the Nile. Either players have taken them or or all the players have bypassed them and they've been pushed into the underworld. Once they're all off the table, then they score and whoever has the most tokens gets the points. Or, sorry, whoever has the most tokens loses those points because you start at a certain number and it's whoever gets to zero first is the winner. You must shed yourself of your earthly corruption in order to be able to emerge into the underworld Judged by the Code of Maat and not swallowed by the Great Cosmic Crocodile, if you are found to be wanting. Anyway. I'm wondering if, you know, getting out all these extra components that you don't use is actually longer than the game takes itself. I'm not sure. Well, it does when everyone is looking at the neoprene mat and the giant uh, wooden figures that go on it and marveling at what is (laughs) transpired in front of you. So, of course, this was a Kickstarter by 25th Century Games. There are less blinged out versions of Tutankhamun. I looked at the Kickstarter. This is what they planned right from the beginning. I know, but you can get, like, actual tiles. You can get not... So the tiles are wooden in my version. You can get not wooden tiles. You can get... Get not neoprene mat. With, I was going to say, that's going the other way. You can get even more deluxe and get a neoprene mat to put everything on as well. Yes, there is. You can get a, you can get more neoprene so you can <laughs> arrange the Nile. Yeah, uh, but I know my limits. Yeah. Uh, it, it's strange because, again, you can you can draw these through lines between Reiner Knizia's work, set collection, Egyptian timing, and that describes a lot of his games, but they're all really different. Like, you can make that claim about Amun-Re, arguably. You can definitely make that claim about Ra. You can make that claim about Tutankhamun. I was not expecting to enjoy Tutankhamun all that much because despite the fact that I'm a huge, unabashed fan of Reiner Knizia as my favorite designer of all time, as we've made evidently clear, he designs lots of games that I just don't find particularly interesting. And on the face of it, Tutankhamun is bone simple. Take a tile, you'll get said collection. But the timing elements, and to me, is the tiebreaker condition that makes it. Because you're frequently dealing in relatively small sets of tiles. Two, four, six, eight is the highest number. And whoever is furthest back in the Nile is the one who breaks the tie. And so you're, you find yourself in a situation where, well... I've got these tiles. I could race ahead to force scoring of this tile set. But if I do that, I might lose the tiebreaker for all these other tile sets where I'm competing. And or I'm not, I don't have that option because I'll just be handing first to somebody else. So those trade-offs, which influence everything going back, and it's a no-luck game. Once you set up the game, there's absolutely no luck at all. And it's really interesting. You end up with these fascinating little combinatoric decisions about what sets to compete in and when and how and when to push and when to go conservatively. I was really surprised by how much I enjoyed it, especially since a number of people who are fellow Knizia fans tend to regard Tutankhamun as one of his slightly more forgettable designs. But I was hugely impressed and absent the setup time, because the setup time is non-trivial. You do have to lay out a large number of tiles in a, in a random order along the Nile. But I'm, I, I, I absolutely think it's worth it. The, this, is, this allows for kind of deep thinking, but nonetheless is extremely accessible. In other words, zero gaming at its very, very best. And I think this is another really, really solid, lightweight design by Rana Knizia that allows for some quality decisions. I think the only place it fails for me is the gods. 
there's these God tiles that you can pick up. And I really feel as though it was an opportunity lost. I think if it was just work reworkshopped a little bit, it could make those God tiles way more interesting and not overpowered or make them, you know, you just, just, they seem completely useless in most cases. In most cases, I agree with you. Some of them are exceptionally situational. And even then yes. they're not particularly handy because it's not like a Gizia, right? In a Gizia or some of the other games of its ilk, if you're further back in the Nile, that effectively means you're going to get more turns. Tutankhamun doesn't work that way. You're only going to get the number of turns you're going to get. Although, of course, as I say, timing matters hugely because somebody wins, they win. You just get to a certain point total, and that's it. Game over. So you have to worry about that timing. But if you go and take a god tile, which executes a special power, that is you giving up the opportunity of taking something else that could score you points. And I found them to be very disappointing, just as you have. And that is Tutankhamun. Like we said, Reiner Knizia, and it's published by 25th Century Games. Now note, this is Amun spelt A-M-U-N, not A-M-E-N, which was the original printing of the game. 25th Century Games, just to make things complicated and to mess up databases, has decided to spell Amun differently for this particular edition, Psy. But 25th Century Games is going to be coming out with a reprint of Raw, they say, and I, for one, am very much looking forward to it based on what they've done with Tutankhamun. We got to go back to Lancaster, Mark. This is designed by Matthias Kramer and put out by Queen Games. So this is the second time I've played this, and I'm enjoying it more and more every time I play it. The different ways you can manipulate the board, i.e. you're putting out all these workers, and then there's actions that upgrade the workers, that make workers that have been placed later on in the path more powerful, and sort of double-thinking your opponents and thinking that they've won something or in the lead somewhere, and now because of these earlier actions, you're now upgrading your pieces and, and, and changing the state of the board, I find very interesting. We played it with five this time, we played it with three, and like many Euro games, especially worker placement games, that don't really scale or change the board with number of players, I was expecting five to feel hugely different and it didn't and i'm actually happy about that because a common conception of lancaster is that it's not really worth playing with three and really it's it shines at four and five and i don't think that that's necessarily accurate the way the board is already throttled because you have to worry about managing your workforce both in terms of quality and quantity and there are certain spaces you can't go until your 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 knights your workers are of a certain strength anyway and so the board in the three-player game still feels tight and as the board opens up more people have more spaces anyway the salient difference playing with five is that there was a lot more jockeying for the fights with france because the board was just less appealing by contrast. And so, I, I, again, it was just a different kind of tightness. We played with one of the expansions this time, only the alternate laws. This new set of laws, you just can just either replace the existing laws or shuffle them in. And we didn't want to introduce some of the more elaborate expansions with the new players. Although I've heard very, very good things about some of the other expansions for Lancaster. But the new laws were nice for just a little bit of variety. And I agree with you. I think that it's a very, very strong worker placement euro from, you know, 10-ish years ago that is worth revisiting. I'll stress what I said before. It offers an interesting take on the pressure to maintain a quality workforce. It's somewhere between Agricola and Caverna, which is get as many children as possible or lose. 
and something like, you know, Tribune, where there is no ability to get more workers except for one very strange corner case, so don't even bother. Here, managing your workforce, getting the upgrades, getting new workers, trying to figure out how much effort to put into that is very interesting because at the end of the game, we had some people who had maxed out workforces and some players who had much less improvement of the workforce, and they were very comparable score-wise, and so I found that very impressive. I, I am looking forward to going back to Lancaster again. I think it's an excellent worker placement game that has definitely piqued my curiosity, and I'm curious to see the other expansions that work too. It's true, and you touched on the on the on the laws, but I just want to go over very quickly because that's another very interesting part of the game. You can see the three laws that are going to be voted on at the end of this round, and there's three laws that are already enacted, not in the very first round of the game, but eventually, eventually. So you can sort of kind of work towards what you think is going to, because once they're voted in, then they're going to be resolved immediately. So you can work towards the ones that aren't actually enacted yet in hopes that they're going to be voted in. And when they're voted in, it slides the old ones out. So that's a great mechanism as well. So there's this whole thing trying to make sure you have enough votes, seeing what other people are trying to go for and shut them down that way. I think there's just such different roads to excitement in Lancaster. I agree. There are situations where you look at the slate of laws and you don't really care about the laws themselves. You just want to pass as many of them as possible because the existing law you want to flush badly because it's not doing you any favors and or is punishing you. And I really think that, it again, it strikes a pretty good balance, much like the worker management. It strikes a balance between, oh, I wish I'd known that law existed because you really have to build towards it. And, well, these laws don't really matter at the end of the day. But you might have something that comes up and says, well, if this law is passed, which is a big if, then for every two nights you have in the counties, you'll get a relatively substantial number of points. And so then you might think, okay, well, how much is my political influence? Do I want to put a whole bunch of knights into the counties this round and then hope to pass the law? Do I want to do that just in safety because I figure somebody else is going to try to do it anyway for other reasons? And you, there's a lot of points that can enter the system, but nothing really feels like an unwarranted surprise or like you have to pass the reference sheet to everybody and say, now pay attention to the laws that come out in rounds four and five or you're not going to do very well. And so it, it gives that nice little bit of, of round interest and excitement from round to round that you often find lacking in Euro games of this weight. That is Lancaster. I got to play a game that was sent to us by Marcus, a listener, and this is called Spire's End. And this is designed by Greg Farrow, and it's self-published. And what it is, is sort of like a choose-your-own-adventure deck. You have uh, this, you know, hundred or more card deck, and you have this uh, other deck of seven characters, and you're going to choose two at random. And you're going to go through this interesting adventure where you're fighting monsters, making decisions, you know, which paths to go down with this fantastic sort of black-red, very much like claustrophobia art. Very, you know, white background, stark black and red. Well, the palette anyway. The palette, yes. So far, I've played it twice. Seems very interesting. I'm wondering if the D8s are a little, you know, swingy, but I think that's just the way the game is supposed to be. It's not, you know, it's not supposed to be, you know, uh, minimalistic combat and just sort of work your way through an interesting story. It's supposed to be brutal combat. Your character's dying. You know, when one dies, you just you know, deal up another one and you, <laughs> you have seven to go through. So, you know, don't worry about them dying. So I'm interested to go through and see if I can actually make it through a complete game. And that is Spire's End. And on that note, just keep, keep looking at it. I think this is one that I'm going to be playing on the stream. So, cause it's a, a you know, a interesting one that you can, you know, play along with the audience. So it looks to me and it sounds to me a little bit like Escape the Dark Castle or Escape the Dark Sector. 
neither of which I know you've played, but I played Escape the Dark Sector, and I found it very interesting, primarily by virtue of the art style, and primarily by virtue of some of the uh, light world-building elements. And again, the sense of hopelessness and, and pointlessness and very simple combat. But I've only seen the setup for Aspire's End, and it's certainly visually impressive. The artwork is undeniably arresting. Yeah, and got, uh, maybe if, if I'm very, very nice to you, you'll let me try it. Yeah, I'm sure we'll play it in the next couple of days. It's got that interesting system where you use your hit points to make attacks. Like you have whole, this whole list of attacks and they cost so many hit points. So you got that interesting, you know, back, you know, oh, do I really need to? And it resets in every encounter. So you sort of I say, see. I really need to kill this guy now. I'm going to take the chance and go down to one hit point in hopes that, you know, we're going to kill him this round. And if we don't, well, then dun, dun, dun. And that is Spire's End. We finished our campaign of The King's Dilemma. After 16 games, by my count, we finally exhausted the deck. It was actually the case where the game ended on the final card of the so-called Dilemma deck. We're not going to get into details, both because of spoilers and because of the fact that we're going to be detailing it in our Patreon show, The Jester's Ailment. But I just wanted an opportunity to mention that we've finally wrapped it up. And I have to say that my, with one salient exception, and if you've been listening to The Jester, you know exactly what I'm talking about, the King's Dilemma has been reliably satisfactory and engaging and compelling for me. I've enjoyed it mechanically, but I've definitely enjoyed it in terms of the word building and the narrative that happened and how engaged and how heated we can get about the most random and gameplay irrelevant political decisions. And if you think that you have gamer friends that don't want to talk politics, you might be surprised at how much they're inclined to talk politics if you put the King's Dilemma out in front of them. And I don't mean talking politics about, you know, hot-button political issues, but about whether or not a certain scholar's work should be suppressed because it conflicts with what, what's going on with the church. Or suddenly you find out that this person who you didn't think had any solid political views suddenly has very strong opinions about how markets ought to run. I maintain that it was the by far, in a way, the best game of 2019, and I am very, very glad to have finished the campaign. I'm also a little bit disappointed that it's over, but such is the nature of campaigns. Yeah, it's, it's Horrible Guild. They... Their things are popping up from them over and over again. It's they're definitely a uh, a publisher to keep an eye out. They're they're the ones that do all the railroad ink stuff. As it's well. true. Same designers, same publisher. And that is the King's Dilemma. There's not much for me to say on it. I I'm all in the same boat. It's uh, it was a fantastic ride. I would do it again. Well, I'm not. I couldn't. Not do the it same again. one. Not yeah, same, exactly. But exactly. If, but if I could go back and had to make the decision, then I'd jump in with both feet for sure. I was weary at first. But uh, it was quickly... uh, It won you over. It won me over. And that is The King's Dilemma. Lastly from me is Great Western Trail. Been playing it a lot on Board Game Arena and got some information about the second edition that's coming out. There's going to be double-layered boards. There's going to be some new buildings in the base set. And in the expansion, they have this thing, Mark, called Exchange Tokens. It's sort of like another, I don't want to say a currency, but there are other tokens that you have. And you can exchange them to do certain things, mostly like cycle your cards at the last minute. So these are going to be included in the game now. So they've decided that these are something that's essential for gameplay. So now they're going to be in just the normal game as well. I have a question. Do you know if in the second edition... Cattle Trail is going to go in the right direction. That I don't know. All right, I'm curious. It all depends on if the aliens have changed the signs or not. I keep forgetting that, yeah. <laughs> I keep forgetting that, I, that the directionality actually makes perfect sense. When you play with the 
definitely superior Walker variant where it's all about feeding cows to aliens. So all the arts changed up. They have even have a new type of cow as well. So that should a be new a- type of cow. I know, crazy, right? Who knows? A cow with six legs? A cow, well, that's the, the aliens are bringing their cows in, sort of trying to mix the breed. They like the sure. taste of their own cows better. And sure. they sort of want to switch it up. Makes perfect sense. Exactly. And those are the games we played this week. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Mark, Brass Burnham is on Steam. Came out. We're not huge fans, but I've only played it one or two times. I wouldn't mind giving it another try, so I've already picked it up. And... Uh, couldn't get through the tutorial, <laughs> but uh, says build a cotton mill. Yes, click, click, click. I want. Let me. Damn it! We need Ramun Flame to do an adaptation. So they'll get it right. So now I just have to jump right into an actual game with you know rule book on the side, since the tutorial doesn't seem to want to work. But it's just brand new, so I can't really fault it. It will be updated. I'm sure, and more on other games that are updated later. A couple of Twitter news bits, actually. Ooh. So Grail Games, in an editorial that we discussed at the time, was talking about the future of their company, and they said that they weren't going to be able to publish some of the upcoming planned Knizia reprints slash new designs slash expansion to Yellow and Yangtze because something-something sales something-something. And everyone accepted that explanation because that's what Grail Games said, and we didn't have any news from anybody else. Well, Reiner Knizia says otherwise. Reiner Knizia on Twitter said that actually the reason why the contracts weren't weren't renewed was because Grail Games was in breach of contract. <laughs> and so that's why they don't have his designs anymore. Immediately after this tweet was published, Grail Games pulled the editorial from their website where they talked about something, something, sales, something, something. And so now we know what Reiner Knizia's PhD is in. His PhD is not in mathematics. It's in spilling the tea because he done spilled that tea. <laughs> wasn't that the Grill Games editorial? Wasn't it the one like certain reviewers don't like older games? So... No, that was Z-Man talking oh, okay. about the cancellation of the Euro Classics right. line. Suffice to say, look, I completely understand. Anytime you do something, especially if you've worked hard on it, and it doesn't reach whatever kind of success you wanted it to reach, of course you can find a million and one other causes uh, to blame. Okay, the upshot is, we don't know for a fact that this is because of unpaid royalties, but a whole bunch of designers, you know, from Jeff Engelstein on down, immediately weighed in and said, this is probably for unpaid royalties. Pretty much every long-time professional freelance designer who doesn't publish their own designs has a horror story about not getting paid royalties for for their designs or it being paid late or it being paid not on the approved schedule or what have you. So the suspicion is this is because of unpaid royalties, particularly during a period in 2019 when Grail Games had some serious financial difficulties. But this is speculation. We do not endorse the speculation. We merely point it out, like in Robert Bolt's Man for All Seasons. But there are now two sides to this particular story. (laughs) I, don't, I just want a Yellow Nancy expansion. Is that so much to ask? Uh, yes, it is too much to ask. Damn. And that's unfortunate because uh, I think uh, Board Game Geek just put out a whole new chipset for Yellow Nancy as well. Yes, if you want to pay the cost of the base game again, you can have Bakelite tiles for Yellow Nancy. Yeah. yeah. Same thing with Raw. I was briefly tempted by the Raw tiles, but the problem is I have the Uberplay version, and in the Uberplay version, the tiles are actually substantially larger, and so the tiles would be the right size. That knits a crap load of money. That and only ships to the United States of America. So I guess I have many reasons. So over to Twitch news, I got I played Gaia Project again on our on our stream, and I unboxed a couple of games, particularly 
the pursuit of happiness and Spire's End that I just talked about. The pursuit of happiness because, Mark, I got in on a on a Kickstarter for the big box of Pursuit of Happiness. And it wasn't until the fulfillment part where I realized that there was no offer of the base game. <laughs> so I was lucky enough to contact Artipia Games and they said they would send us a base game and we've got it. So we're going to give that a whirl. It's sort of like the advanced game of life. Sort of like the game of life for gamers, a little more grit. At least I hope there will be some more grit there. Can I put pegs in a plastic car? No. Then why? I, I, I don't. Know. I failed. I, know. I, I don't. I, I know. Okay, you, I you see can, where you you're said, coming from here. You said, you said it was like, it's like the peril of recommending things. This is kind of like the game of life. It's like, oh, I can't wait to see what plastic cars they have. Oh, wait, what? <laughs> well, it'll give you the feel of the game of life. We'll see. The and, feel of a plastic car? And then coming up, <laughs> coming up uh, this week, we have uh, another review copy that will be unboxing on the Twitch channel million dollar script so if you're interested in that at all it is a portal game that got sent to us and you get to you know invent a movie plot it's like a party game other fabulous twitter news if you have any interest in imperium classics the game well half of the game or maybe all of the game i don't know is it half of the game or is it all the game is five fifteenths of a game five it's definitely more than that anyway some portion Possibly all of the game we will be reviewing this week, if you're at all interested in what you hear. The pinned tweet on the So Very Wrong About Games Twitter feed. Man, we are if, so savvy. We are so plugged like in with the, the social meds. Yeah, we're, we're in with the dig. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, next we'll, be, we'll have a Snapchat, if that's actually a thing that still exists. I, I've I, just been hearing about Snapchat because of the salty cheerleader case. Are you familiar with this? No. F cheer, F softball, F everything. It was a big First Amendment case. Anyway, great case. Glad she won. Anyway, uh, so if you go to the So Very Wrong About Games Twitter feed, which is at So Wrong Games, and you like the pinned tweet, you'll be entered into a random draw for an in-shrink copy of Imperial Classics sent to your very door because I uh, ended up with two copies of the game. So <laughs> if you're not interested to go do that, you don't have to subscribe or whatever. I'm only asking you to like a tweet, not because I'm trying to, to zhuzh our metrics or anything. It's because that's the easiest and lowest burden way to get a whole list of people from which I could randomly select to give something. So anyway, and at So Wrong Games. Free games. Lastly for me, Bonfire. I haven't got to play it a lot. Sort of like in the sort of same vein, they're going to get, long story short, there's going to be expansion coming out called Trees and Creatures. It'll be three modules that you can add all together or or one or more. And Bonfire is a game I hope I get to play more. I only got to play it once. We should really play that again. I, I think we should. It's the problem. I was going to talk about this. I might as well talk. It's just... It's your show, Walker. Go ahead. They're not these these distributors, Mark. Not distributors. These these uh, producers. Mm-hmm. They need to get on their Kickstarter programs. They can't be having these games coming out in January, like the very end of the year. <laughs> We're supposed to have that like two to three month period uh-huh. of a break from new games that we can go back and revisit these older games and get a chance to catch up. They can't be waiting to the last minute and screwing this up like they have been the last first couple again, years. First of all, I would be remiss if I did not once again give you a hard time for referring to bonfire as and i quote an older game end quote <laughs> secondly in this particular market you realize that the hobbyist board games which consists of a rounding error of the global trade economy 
is just behind the eight ball in terms of global shipping as much as everybody else. Sony can't get PlayStation 5s into the hands of people. How well do you think oh. your average board game publisher can make shipping to China work? That's, a, that's bad news for us. <laughs> uh, finally, this episode is a multiple of five, which means we're going to mention that we have a Patreon. We have a Patreon. There'll be bonus content released while I'm on the road, even as that we have no episodes. I guess for people who are not interested in the fact that we have a Patreon, uh, I'll serve to remind you, this is the last regular episode you're going to be hearing for some time while I make my way west. We, uh, we are going to be pre-recording lots of content, both for patrons and for non-patrons, so you're going to see something in the feed during the intervening weeks. We're not going to completely leave you completely high and dry. But it is going to be some time before you hear a regularly scheduled episode again. And for this, I sincerely apologize. If it makes you feel any better, I don't like the situation any more than you do. And that is the news and why it doesn't matter. On to our feature game. Our feature game this week is Imperium. Possibly just Imperium. Possibly Imperium Classics and Imperium Legends. This is designed by Nigel Buckle and David Turtze, published by Osprey Games of this year. Nigel Buckle published the sort of Euro 4XE thing, Omega Centauri in 2014. He's also going to be co-designing the upcoming Voidfall, which is a kind of Euro 4XE thing. Co-designing it with David Zertze, going to be published by one of the favorite publishers of the show, Mind Clash Games. David Zertze is uh, legally required to be at least the co-designer of every game ever published, and he's been publishing a storm lately. Uh, some of his best-known games are probably Anachrony, which is uh, a game Walker and I both very much enjoy, also published by Mind Clash. Uh, Tekenu, Obelisk of the Sun, which we didn't really like all that much. Kitchen Rush, which is good for some fun. Excavation Earth, which was recently published, which we found fascinating. The recent Vengeance Roll and Fight was co-designed by David Zertze. He's also responsible for almost all of the standalone solo modes in the Eurosphere. Actually, there was a throwaway comment when discussing on the IGA jury about, I don't think this is violating any confidence. <laughs> it's like, well, we, we're good, probably going to give an award for a solo mode, or we could just hand it to David Zertzain. <laughs> he designed the solo modes of Blitzkrieg by Paolo Mori. Also designed the solo mode for Undaunted Reinforcements, Undaunted by Trevor Benjamin and David Thompson. And he also designed the solo mode for Cerebria, also of Mind Clash Games. All three of those games, by the way, we thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy here at So Very Wrong About Games. But this is a collaborative design. It also has, of course, a solo mode. Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in Imperium? I, I'm surprised. You said there's a solo mode. Weren't we playing the solo mode? <laughs> Fair. All right. <laughs> So, yeah, so as that comment just suggests, you're sort of heads down. You're playing a sort of faction that's a historical faction, and they've done a fantastic job of sort of incorporating sort of the feel of of a people into a deck. It has some interesting mechanisms of, of cycling through that deck as fast as you can. More on that later. And you're just not participating with anyone else at the table, in my opinion. <laughs> uh, everything else is... I can. Actually, that's that's how you. That's what I. That's my overall opening for Imperium, Mark. There's not much else I can say about that without going into actually what we're about to talk about with the game itself. So it's a deck builder. It's a civilization themed deck builder, and one of the key selling points is that you have a choice of sixteen different civilizations. If you have both sets, there are eight in each, and they range in time all from 3100 BCE in the case of the Egyptians which is the unification of the upper and lower kingdoms, I think, all the way to 1066 with the uh, the Vikings. And yes, we realize, of course, that the Vikings were not the name of a people. There were, there were several different people that engaged in Viking. We know. Thank you. Also, please submit all comments about whether or not the helmets had horns to support it, aircanada.ca. They viked. <laughs> they done voked. 
Ah, they would. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But <laughs> the head downness is absolutely something we, we can start with. The, the nature of the player interaction is limited to three things. Number one, overall tempo. You can rush the end of the game in a variety of different ways, or you can play at a more stately level, and different nations tend to have preferences in, in various directions. You can buy the thing that somebody else wanted, and indeed every turn you're forced to incentivize a card in the market, making it slightly more appealing for someone else. So there's, there's that, and that is almost purely a player interaction decision, albeit a very, very minor one. And then finally, there are rare attack cards which just make your opponent's life slightly less convenient than they were before. Yeah, which breaks down into two categories. One, here's an unrest card, and two, pick up that territory. Yep, that's pretty much it. So let's just talk about the unrest cards. So unrest cards are the bloat of the game. If anyone's ever played a deck builder, they know what bloat is. They sort of just bog up your deck. And it's also a win condition. If the unrest cards, like curse cards, ever run out, then whoever has the most curse cards is the big loser. Automatically. You don't do the other scoring. It just becomes the pure consideration. And so there's a way There's a way to get play out these uh Unrest cards to put them back into the system, but that takes one of your actions, of which you only have three a turn. Or there are any number of other cards that let you do it for you. This so is true. If you happen to be playing a nation that happens to have... Nation's a bad term. If you happen to be playing a people or a group of people that tends to get burdened with a lot of unrest, then you might want to invest in some cards that help you manage those things. Other groups of people don't really have to worry about it at all and have no interest in getting those 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 abilities that manage them for you. That kind of tension, it's just one of the many resources and aspects to manage in your average game of Imperium. Now, you've talked about tempo, and that's what this game, this is what makes this game stand out, is the, the, the different ways it manipulates tempo. So, we've talked about how we're playing a civilization, or a people, and I shouldn't say all of them, but all that we've played, have you read most of them? Do they all have either barbarian or... No. All right, so some, most of them, though, start off as barbarians and some, and later on change to... Im- Empire. Empire. But the way they do that is all different. Some of them, it, it's a pile that you have to work through, but some of them have a smaller pile. I thought that was very interesting. And so every time you have to reshuffle your deck, you get to add a card to your deck off of this pile. Once it's empty, then now you're you're on to the next stage. So that's one way you can control Temple. The other one is that you're sending cards to your history and and all the other peoples that are... And there's different, interesting ways they score there as well. You know, other keywords that, you know, make stuff happen there. But this is how you're going to thin out your deck, get rid of cards you don't like or cards you can't use anymore because the barbarian cards you can't play anymore once you've you know advanced up and you can't play the advanced cards if you're still barbarian and so you can get rid of those cards there are so many elements of that fundamental development of acquiring they're called it's called your nation deck of acquiring your nation cards of transitioning from barbarian to empire there's so many little bits about it that i adore let me just start with a minor one but it actually has a significant impact on how much i enjoy imperium because most of the time in a deck builder when you have to shuffle your discard pile back into your draw deck, it's just pure tedium. And indeed, it's one of the things that people often complain about. And even if it doesn't come up, it's nothing that people really strenuously enjoy. The great thing about Imperium, though, one of the many great things, when you shuffle your deck, 
That means you're doing well most of the time. There are exceptions. And so you get a new card automatically in your nation deck and you're progressing towards your becoming an empire, which is usually pretty good. Or if you're already an empire, you get a chance to develop and buy a new awesome thing. And so, yes, you have the tedium of shuffling your draw deck, but at the very least there's some consolation and you get some new goodie in the process. Now, there are some... The variety of nations is such that some are very different. I will just stress one. One of the uh, fantasy empires, oh, sorry, <laughs> I have already misspoken. One of the fantasy nations is the Arthurians from the Arthurian legends. They're all, they are always a barbarian state. They never become an empire. And they are one of the uh, factions that doesn't want to burn through their deck as fast as possible. The Utopians are another. And uh, as a consequence, this nation deck that they're going through, they want some of the cards in the nation deck, but if they burn through all of them, it's bad, because what happens then is the final battle, where Mordred and all his buddies come and start killing your knights, and that's awful. So you have to be very, very careful about that. The Utopians, every time they empty their deck, they get an unrest, which is, as we said, relatively bad. All the other ones, though, generally speaking it's a good thing to cycle through your deck, which actually means that sometimes the decision to hold on to a card from turn to turn is uh, surprisingly difficult to do because you really want to get through that cycle most of the time. Now, I want to go back to this being a heads-down, no-interaction game, and I think if if this is a game that you play a lot and get to know this game, then it becomes less so because once you completely understand the deck that your opponent is playing you'll know what they are going for and you'll be able to manipulate the the cards in the middle the cards in the middle are the ones that you're attacking or trying to get into your deck and once you understand the game more then that might open up a different strategy i'm not sure how much of a strategy but at least it would be something more than what's there a lot of there's been a lot of discussion online about ideal player count i've played imperium with every player count except four you can play it from one to four I will say, first of all, that the solo mode, which Walker has not tried, is very, very good, but probably it's not the best way to learn the game. I would encourage you, if you're learning the game, to start with a two-player game, because there, at least, you just get to wrestle with your own deck and the unique way that cards flow through things and not have to worry about additionally managing the AI. The AI is cool, though. Every nation works differently. They follow a different script, but that nonetheless is very, very simple to adjudicate. You do have to worry about managing their cards, and they go in this place and that place and the other place. But it's relatively straightforward, which is, as I keep saying, one of the things that I want out of a solo system. I want to be able to focus my mental energies on playing my own game. I... I've some people swear off three player. I played three uh, a three player game with two players who'd never played before, and it worked shockingly well. Especially since most of the time you're action limited in Imperium, and those times when you're not action limited, you're usually card limited, and so your ability to plan what you're going to do in your turn is pretty good. And so if you focus on just doing that, the game will move at a reasonable clip. There's some exceptions, and I'm going to get to some of them later, but I find that the emphasis on this is only a solo game, or this is only a solo and two-player game, slightly exaggerated, but that having been said, it is absolutely primarily a multiplayer solitaire game. Agreed. And and unfortunately, it leads, it puts a lot of things in the game that pushes you towards that solitaire experience, like as in putting all the victory points pretty well hidden that you don't know what they are so you really can't have any idea what everyone anyone has or what they've got or what they're going for it's all like printed on the bottom and it's either hidden in their history or and the fact like we talked about all the factions are so different you and there's 
if you're just starting out, there's no way you can understand how their deck works because you're already wrestling with your own deck, never mind trying to understand what theirs are doing. Well, scoring is another huge bugbear. Uh, I would go so far as to say, I've, I've played uh, Imperium about 10 times now, and when I play, I still don't know what my score is going to be. <laughs> yeah, we played a game today where I was I was I was not looking forward to the scoring part of it. Like we we played a few games where where the unrest fortunately, you know, took one of us right out. You don't yep. even need to score. It's like, "Oh, well, I have more unrest than you, so you win. That's good." Thankfully, we don't have to go through the six-page, you know, <laughs> scoring tome. Well, it, it's just that there's a whole bunch of conditional cards. Like, this card is a tributary card, and it scores you for the number of regions. Well, okay, this other card is an uncivilized card, and it scores you for the number of tributary cards you have. Oh, okay, so this is kind of nesting into this other thing, and it it's... Uh, this, the, the algebra starts to get a little much. Yeah, you get two... You get a point for every two people. This one will give you a point for every ten brick. This one gives you a point for every two hits. Yeah. Right. Anyway... I have something here where I really felt that the beginning of the game, like maybe the first one third of the game was the most interesting, hmm. sort of like struggling to get through the first part of your deck, learning how it worked. And then it seemed like the end game was just a grind pumping out your engine and just sort of, you know, trying to get to the end game. Huh. I actually really like how your tableau evolves because there's a solid element of tableau building for most nations in Imperium because you have pinned cards, so-called, and when you play them, they stay out and sometimes they give you a special ability that triggers on your turn or maybe a a special ability that triggers once every round during this period called Solstice. Sometimes it can be a little bit difficult to manage all the abilities that trigger in Solstice, but it eventually becomes second nature. And you also have these regions that you play out, basically land cards, that... you have a number of options about what to do with them. You can either have them sit out in front of you and that kind of develops an economic engine and they stay out of your deck so your deck gets nice and lean. Or you can do what's called the glory rush, which is which involves putting them in your discard pile and getting awesome victory cards. Anyway, there are some trade-offs to be done there. But I find that once the mid-game settles in and you've got some tableau powers that might or might not be synergistic with how you're running your other tableau powers and or your nation new interesting opportunities kind of evolve from that and then you start paying more attention to what you're going to be buying and you'd be a little bit more careful about that and it starts to become less just about I am playing my nation the way my nation is supposed to be played which is a fun challenge but if that's all the game had to offer it'd be a very very limited horizon it's true there's a lot of uh, generic not only do you have your own deck but there's a whole bunch of generic cards in the middle and some of them interact with your I wouldn't say generic I would say universal universal sorry purchasable by anybody universal cards and the way they interact with your deck is sometimes very interesting but to get back to that beginning middle late it's it's the game is too long (laughs) I don't I don't I don't I honestly don't feel that way and and one of the reasons why is because and I'm gonna I'm gonna have a lot more to say on this in an editorial than I'm gonna be publishing later I think that Imperium does the best at doing civilization since Francis Tresham's Civ. And I realize that's a bold claim. But I honestly feel that there are fundamentally two different kinds of molds of how to do civilization. There's the kind of Tresham mold, and then there's the Sid Meier mold. And I am sick to death of the Sid Meier mold. I think it is silly, and sometimes I even think that it does violence to the source material. But in Imperium, instead what you get is a very different set of stages in the life cycle of a given powerful nation punctuated by very significant historical events that happen and then are done 
Let me give you an example. So say you're playing the Macedonians, just as one of the relatively straightforward nations. You start out, you're conquering lots of territory, you're acquiring lots of, of, of cards, usually ones that you can turn over and use immediately, and then something happens. You've, you've done this for a while, you've expanded, you've acquired all your land, and now you've become an empire. Well, the demands and needs of an empire are radically different from the demands and needs of a barbarian state as conceived in the game. Suddenly acquiring territory isn't as simple anymore. Now you're a little bit more concerned about developing something akin to a bureaucracy. Perhaps you're looking at developing currency rather than nabbing that other river, river valley or conquering that other group of foreigners. And the cards kind of lead you in that direction. And now you're a little bit challenged. Now you might have to worry about those cards that you were reliant on as a barbarian state are now of no use to you anymore. You're not a barbarian horde. It's time to settle down, get a haircut, and get a job. But, oh, by the way, who's this charming fellow? It's Alexander the Great. He would love to come conquer some things for you, though, because even though he's already established an empire, he's never met a, per a people he doesn't want to subjugate. But here's the thing. He's not an immortal god king. He's not going to go through your deck 17 times, and you're not going to be playing with him until the end of the game. He's going to go, he's going to do something amazing, and then he's going to die of the flu on the border of India. Uh, maybe I'm embellishing a little bit. And he's just going to go into your history. Because one thing that you mentioned early on, and I just want to stress this, every deck builder has ways to get cards out of your deck. But in Imperium, as some other deck builders do, but not a whole heck of a lot, it can either go out of your deck in exile, in which case it's just not going to score for you, or it can go into your history, in which case it's something your, your people did, but it's not in your deck anymore and will still score and will still matter for all those other things. And so that, that little trick alone makes me appreciate Imperium as a Civ game. I was going to say, I want to play this game that you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds really interesting. I, I'm I'm disappointed and, uh, well, not disappointed, but it's a shame you didn't get to appreciate it on that level. I, I'm sorry you weren't feeling it the way that I was feeling it. No, I'm hoping to. Like, there's so many different decks. Like you said, there's 16 different peoples to play, and I'm interested to try out a lot more and, and like, learn a particular one and... and get to see how it works properly the overall thrust applies to the majority of them now some so the vikings uh never become an empire because they were never a cohesive empire they were just a bunch of different peoples that engaged in what this what this game of imperium would classify as barbarian activity they don't mean that in a judgmental way necessarily it's just well at least they say they don't uh the atlanteans on the other hand start out as an empire and you know, obviously, the, 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 as a, it's a fantasy analog. Some nations become start out as barbarian but become empires very, very quickly. Other nations can become empires, but it takes them a while. And those little bits of nuance are sometimes immediately apparent, but sometimes they reveal slowly. And I, I very much appreciate that aspect of developing the field. Because as you said, one thing that Imperium does very, very well in lots of different ways is manage tempo and uh, uh, really makes you feel like the scope of a gameplay session is capturing different elements of a nation's rise through time. So that's all I have to say about Imperium. I definitely would want to keep it to a two-player game. I wouldn't want to play it with any more than that. But I am looking forward to diving a little bit deeper into this game. Honestly, in terms of other deck builders, because Imperium, despite the fact that I've been talking about it mostly under the aegis of kind of a maybe a tableau builder, maybe a Civ game, it is a pure deck builder, more or less. It's not like Mage Knight where deck building is just one thing. And so this is one game that is not like Mage Knight. It's not where deck building is just one element of, of, of an overall broader strategy. There's, there's even less of a board presence than a game like Tyrants of the Underdark. This is mostly just a pure deck builder. But... 
I would analogize it to another pure deck builder that we both also really, really like and is also arguably too long, and that is Core Worlds. Now, there's more player interaction in Core Worlds. I will absolutely grant you that. But I get some of the same sense of action efficiency of really being careful about what actions to take, about always feeling either short uh, short on cards or actions or both. Uh, in the case of Core Worlds, you also have energy to manage. But I do get that same sense of Core Worlds doing something pretty good with the science fiction genre in the domain of a relatively pure deck builder. In the ca- context of Imperium Classics and Imperium Legends, I feel like it is doing Civ better than almost any other game since Civ in the late 70s. in the context of a pure deck builder. I love experimenting with the new people. I have my solid favorites. I like how they feel and the the various tricks that they do, all of which seem very historically inflected in a very, very nice, albeit not necessarily thoroughly chromey way. And I've... The the number of times I have felt compelled just to say, oh, I'll bang out a quick solo game and just start setting it up, I've been surprised. Ever since it arrived, it has mostly been on my table, trying out different combinations of civs against against each other. I, I, I'm i a huge fan of Imperium Classics and Imperium Legends. This is my favorite David Circe design since Anachrony, and I'm really looking forward to Nigel Buckle's future output, honestly. I'm now kind of keen for Voidfall. I was I was somewhat skeptical about Voidfall before, but if this is what this pair can come up with, I'm very much looking forward to, to what's coming, up, uh, um, coming down the pike. I would encourage you to pick up either Imperium Classics or Imperium Legends. When you have both, not only do you have the option of 16 different powers to play as, but there's very little overlap in terms of the cards in the two sets. There is some, but not a whole heck of a lot, and you get to pick which sets of cards you play with. I realized that most of the time I was agreeing with some of Walker's substantive criticisms, and they're absolutely accurate. It's mostly multiplayer solitaire, and it is, for a pure deck builder, very long. But I think the length is warranted. I love the historical flavor. I really like it mechanically as well. And I think that Imperium is a real winner. Well, that's going to do it for us at So Very Wrong About Games. Thank you very, very much for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon and Twitch. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. Ladies and gentlemen, friends and neighbors, dear listeners, thank you for joining us once again for Spike Presents Masterpiece Theater in honor of the Reverend Dr. Dr. Vincent Earl of Diesel, OBE Esquire. Today we are talking about the fifth installment of the Fast and Furious franchise, appropriately named Fast Five. Walker, what do you have to share with our listeners? Mark, we have some trying times coming up ahead. We're going to be recording remotely. We'll be far off in the distance. Do you know what we need? What do we need? Mark, we need a team. <laughs> we see the, the glorious full return of Kang Soo Ho as Han, the coolest man on film. Honestly, I, I adore 
this actor and I adore this character. I just want to watch him snack for all eternity. I would watch him do that for 90 minutes. Also, numeracy has returned. Didn't we watch that for 90 minutes? Fair enough. It's true. (laughs) Also, numeracy has returned. We have numbers again. Sanity has permanently departed, though. Here we see a bus roll over roughly 46 times with no injuries whatsoever. Oh, my God. They specifically say that. <laughs> specifically, no one was injured. You I couldn't say, like, one or two died. No. This, no. This Everyone was fine. It was fine. They were fine. They were fine. They it were was fine. full of people. <laughs> it's just a tin can with bodies inside, but they were fine. Oh they were fine. Okay. And every character magically has whatever skills are needed for the movie. We need a safe cracker? No problem. Ludacris always was a safe cracker. <laughs> we need Wonder Woman to be a driver, too? No problem. She was always a driver. The movie barrels through common sense and plausibility with all the finesse of a 10-ton bank vault rolling through an urban area. 14 out of 10. 14 out of 10, indeed. My very confused part, it was obviously that there was they were going to switch vaults, but they still had this dramatic moment of, of Vin Diesel turning back and, and heading <laughs> towards the police when he knew it was switched. We knew it was switched. It was, <laughs> and we didn't even talk about that. Do you know what The Rock is cooking? I honestly think that The Rock was the weakest part of the movie. Well, it was early Rock. It was early Rock, yeah, because The Rock is good at showing up and being charismatic, not being the heavy. Although I, I, I was promised one of the most homoerotically tinged fight scenes in popcorn movies, and they absolutely delivered. And then there was another scene. I gotta talk. This is longer than the rest, but I gotta talk about this. <laughs> this, this went venture spleen walker ridiculousness. I can either jump off a train, a moving train, which has been done. Thousands of times in movies right. to no injury, or I can jump off the train onto a car, which then barrels off about what 50, 60 stories at down least. into water. At least that would kill anyone, of course. Yeah, <laughs> Mustang update no Mustangs, revised rating one out of ten, literally unwatchable. Thank you very much for joining us. For Spike presents Masterpiece Theater in honor of the Reverend Dr. Dr. Vincent, Earl of Diesel, OBE Esquire. Please join us again for whenever. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.